The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. As Jesus was passing through a field of grain on the Sabbath, his disciples began to make a path while picking the heads of grain. At this, the Pharisees said to him, Look what they are doing. Why, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, is a, and, he and his companions were hungry? How he went into the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of offering that only the priests could lawfully eat and shared it with his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is why the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Gospel of the Lord. How quickly the mighty fall. Just a couple days ago, we saw Samuel anointing Saul as king, and we hear today that Saul's already been rejected and is about to be replaced. In the middle of what happened, because it didn't happen immediately, is again the issue of what does it mean to truly lead the people of God? What does it truly mean to serve the Lord? And Saul is rejected not because he's a coward, not because he's incompetent. Saul is ejected because he is disobedient. In the reading yesterday, the Lord gives Saul victory over enemies of the people that are under the command of make sure, make sure you get rid of everything. And then we see that Saul and his men decide that they will be faithful to the Lord in the way they will choose to be. And so that even though the Lord said, get rid of everything, what we'll do is we'll take the best and then we'll offer it to the Lord as if somehow the disobedient selection of the most valuable things to make an offering was somehow going to be more pleasing to the Lord than simply obeying him in the first place. And it is this issue of Saul and Israel's willfulness that we will serve you, Lord, in the manner of our choosing, which God deems unacceptable. And so it is now that we have this moment of Samuel, the same Samuel of whom we heard in our first reading just last Sunday, the young man who kept waking poor Eli up at night uh, saying, you called me? That's this Samuel. And we see that Samuel still possesses tremendous respect and tremendous authority in Israel. And the Lord says to Samuel, it is time to find the replacement for Saul, the one who is the king that I truly desire. And why? Because this will be a king, as Scripture says, after my own heart, in the words of the Lord. One who, however imperfect he will be, and as we continue reading through the book of Samuel, over the coming weeks, we will see just how imperfect David is. However imperfect he is, 
what he does desire is to serve the Lord according to the way the Lord wants to be served. He may not succeed, but that is the way of his heart. He is a man after the heart of the Lord, which means I recognize however imperfectly, even however tragically wrongly I may understand it, my desire is to do the will of the Lord. To serve the Lord, not merely in my own way, but to make my way of serving the Lord the way that God wants me to serve him. Note the difference there. The issue is serving the Lord in the way that God wants us to serve him. And that's the way we need to make our own. And so we see here that as Samuel dines with Jesse and his sons, and he knows that one of them will be the anointed of the Lord, they're all brought before him and they all cut splendid figures, just like Saul did. And we see here that Samuel now needs to be taken to school in terms of what the Lord is really looking for. Because Saul was physically impressive. Saul was handsome. Saul gave a great impression. And what do we see? The family of Jesse is similar. His sons are tall. They're good-looking. They're strong. They make a good impression. And it's not that that is bad. It's that the Lord is after more than one who makes a good impression. And this is why the Lord says, okay, look, this is what everybody saw with Saul. He cuts a dashing figure. That's fine, but it's not enough. I want one who does more. And so all of a sudden, finally, we go through seven sons, that number of fullness, completion, even perfection. It's almost as if he's saying he went through the entire household of Jesse and came up empty. In terms of those that the father himself, Jesse, deemed important and worthy to be at this honor of the banquet with Samuel, the seer, there was one who still needed to do the work of the house. He must be the least important, the youngest, the one of least status. And so note what happens. We go through the fullness of worldly status. We go through the fullness of the pecking order in the family. And having reached the fullness, Samuel now needs to ask Jesse, all right, that's everybody, unless there's one left. And note that this one has to be sent for because he wasn't brought. And that's understandable. He's the youngest, the others are the more prominent members of the family. And so we see again this curious tendency of the Lord to have greatness hidden in the one that is least, the one whose importance is not so obvious. And when young David is brought, he cuts a splendid figure too, equally splendid as his brother's. And again, if we read the scriptures in a shallow way, we sit there and say, well, okay, the Lord rejected the one good-looking guy who made a good impression, but he's taking this good-looking guy who makes a good impression. What's the difference? And the difference is what's inside that young man. 
that beneath that good impression is a heart that wants to do more than make an impression. And this is what the Lord is after. The impression that the Lord wants us to make is the impression of our obedience, the the impression of our seeking after his will. And so it is that the Lord says, this is one whose heart could do that. That's the one I want. I want one who doesn't simply look good. I want that one who, in fact, will strive to be good. I want one who doesn't simply look the part of a king. I want one who will be a king after my own And so it is, in a very remarkable phrase, Samuel anoints the young man so that he will one day be king over Israel. And we hear that the Spirit of the Lord, something that we didn't hear about about Saul, rushed upon him. And just pay attention to the violence of that expression. This is not the Spirit of the Lord gently came upon him. This is like a strong wind, a flood, a deluge coming upon this young man. Not slowly, not gradually, but all of a sudden and all at once in some kind of overwhelming way. And we see here that to really be the object of the Lord's election in this way produces a tremendous change, a tremendous strengthening in that one who is called and responds. And we will see that despite this powerful presence of the Spirit of the Lord with him, David is still going to fail time and again. And yet there is something about this one whose heart is so firmly devoted to trying to know how to serve the Lord in the way that the Lord wants, that will be the singular measure of his greatness. And why? Because what we see here, preparing us for what we will hear in our gospel reading, is that man is made for God. It's not that God is made for man or by man. Man is made for God. He's not made for the things of God. He is made for God. It's so easy in worldly terms to think about being made for kingship, to be being made for a career, being made for a work, being made for a mission. None of us are. We're made for God. And all of these other things come out of that. And so this is the issue now we see where this same David is mentioned by Jesus in the Gospels. It's a Sabbath, and the Lord and his disciples are passing through a field of grain. The disciples are making a path for themselves, and they're also picking the heads of grain and eating them as they're walking through. And... You almost wonder at this point, like, did the Pharisees have a tail on Jesus because they always show up at these moments? Um, And so here it is. They're going through this field of grain. Probably there's no one else around, and somehow the Pharisees show up. 
And they show up because they are looking to find fault. Why else are they there? Why else are they there? They show up looking to find fault, and what do they see? Oh my God, it's the Sabbath, and they're working. And again, the issue is, the command is, do no servile work on the Sabbath. No work at all. And so why is it, if Jesus is the great teacher of Israel, he's getting this wrong? And he's letting his disciples, whom he should be teaching the right way, do this. Notice they're not criticizing the disciples, they're criticizing Jesus. If you're their teacher, why are you not teaching them properly? What kind of teacher are you? Because if you were who you say you are, they would not be doing this with you near them. And you can almost see Jesus step back, take in a deep breath. Because it must have been just fantastic for the Word of God to receive these criticisms about what he meant when he originally spoke. And so it is that Jesus looks at them and says, First of all, consider your own history and the examples you hold up in front of everybody. And he goes, in fact, let's start with one of the biggest. Let's start with David, the man after the heart of God. And look at what he did when he and his followers were in trouble. They were hungry. And what did he do? He even went into the temple. And he found the bread that only the priest could eat. And he took it. And he didn't just take it, he gave it to those who were with him. And why? Because their hunger was real. And their need was real. And it didn't matter in that context what the law said about the Sabbath or who could eat that bread. And why? Man's need is the greater thing. And it's out of that that Jesus steps back and he says, man is not made for the law. And this is what the Pharisees keep getting wrong. Man is not made for the law. Man is not made by the law. Man was not created for the sake of the Sabbath. We have the Sabbath and we have the law for the good of man. Note the difference. Note the priority. The priority is the good of man. And that is the lens out of which these things must be understood. And so note that Jesus isn't saying the Sabbath is unimportant, let's just get rid of that. Jesus is not saying this whole list of rules is really silly, let's throw them out. But he is saying if we have to navigate these things, we need to have a reliable way of doing it, rather than some fault-finding desire for a degree of perfection that none of us can reach. And so, understand that. 
And when he says this, that the Sabbath was made for man, he is speaking in a very loaded way. Because in Scripture, there are two fundamental understandings of why the Sabbath is there. And the first is created to God's making of the world. And note, he makes man before he makes the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath is when God has made everything, and then he rests and savors the goodness of what he has done. And note that nuance of the Sabbath. It is not merely rest. It is not merely take a break. It is rest in the goodness of what has been made. And this, the original Sabbath command for man, then, is to rest in the goodness of what God has done for us. To rest in the goodness of the blessings we received, not just to rest from our labors because we're tired, that's not bad, but that is not the essence. And why rest? Because if we keep working, if we keep moving, we never pause and appreciate what has been done. But then, as Moses gives the law to the people, another understanding of the Sabbath comes in. And it's remember that you were once slaves. And what is the definition of slavery? Work without rest. You were once slaves. Don't continue to live like slaves. Appreciate again the freedom that God has given you. How? Give your servants rest. Even give your animals rest, but most of all, give yourselves rest. Because it's for your good. And again, note that, note that, idea. It is for your good. It is not merely a hoop that the Lord longs for you to jump through. All of that being said then, the Lord says, the Sabbath was made for man. So there is a certain fundamental lordship that man has over the Sabbath, and most especially the God-man, the Son of Man, Christ himself who has authority not simply to interpret the Sabbath, but he's the one who gave the Sabbath in the first place, of course he has authority over it. All of that being said, it is important to correct a certain confusion that lives still today among many Christians, and it's this. We do not have a Sabbath day. There is no Christian Sabbath. The old understanding of the Sabbath passes away with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We don't keep the Sabbath, we keep the Lord's Day. And for 2,000 years, that is how the church has understood it. It is not the Sabbath. It is not merely, and I note, and it's not Saturday. The Lord's Day is Sunday. And for us, it replaces the Sabbath. It goes beyond the Sabbath. It fulfills everything the Sabbath was made for and points to. Because on the day that Christ rises victorious from the tomb, it is on the one hand the eighth day, the day that follows the original week of creation, and it's the new day. 
the day that the Lord has made is the first day of the new creation. And in this, rising from the dead, Jesus frees us from slavery to sin and darkness. And he opens up the gates of heaven for us so that we can enter into the eternal rest, the joyful rest that God promises his people. Note the difference. And so for us, we do not have a Sabbath. We have the Lord's day, the day of his victory, the day that he has made, the day that all things are made new, including us. Like the old Sabbath, we're instructed not to preoccupy ourselves with too many worldly affairs on that day. Like the old Sabbath, we are said, we are told, come together as the people and celebrate. Lay aside the unnecessary distraction and joyfully rest in the great things that God has done. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. That is the great prayer of Easter Sunday from the Psalms. It is how the church still understands the keeping of Sunday. It is not merely a day of rest. It is something much greater. And the Lord knows this as he's speaking to the Pharisees. You are clinging to something that you barely understand, and you are reducing it to issues of mere compliance. And yet, there is something greater that it points to, something wondrous that it was placed on earth for, and I am about to realize its fulfillment, because there will come a new day, a victorious day, a day when all things are made new, a day when my disciples will not merely be plucking heads of grain as they walk through a field, but they will go out into the world bearing the bread of angels for starving souls to feast upon. And they will distribute that bread, not on the Sabbath, but on the Lord's day. What a remarkable conjunction of readings that we have here. But note again that it all turns on the issue. Man is not made for the things of God. Man is made for God. And it is that same Lord for whom we are made who will meet us here in this place with his body and his blood. And as we come forward and stretch out our hands, he gives himself to us. Why? Because we are made for him. Amen.